Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. So if you listened to our radio show last week, you may have noticed that we were talking about the anticipated Supreme Court decision uh, in the Dobbs case. And as you may have also noticed, uh, that show was recorded uh, slightly before its broadcast date of last Saturday. And in the interim, in those short uh, 24 or 48 hours or however long it was, the Dobbs decision did come out. Um, so uh, I want to talk about that because there's been a lot of a lot of talk about this. And uh, obviously those that are in the legal world and, and pay close attention to what the Supreme Court does and how uh, opinions sort of, you know, wander from one place to the next uh, in and as it's a part of the fabric of our society. You know, there's been a lot of commentary on that, of course. But I think it's very interesting um, to look at how the Supreme Court's role in the process of determining uh, what exactly its role is has been something that has gone in various directions over the years. You know, go back to basics. We have our three branches of government, as you all know, our executive, legislative, and judicial branch. And there's this concept of um, checks and balances, and that comes from the idea that there should be three equal branches, which, by the way, isn't really explicitly worked out that way as in terms of like equal percentages. In the Constitution, but over the years of um, the Supreme Court trying to define its role through the early years of the court, and then on to the the years in which um, the court asserted more influence over its you know, over its own role, really started with the expansion of the Commerce Clause in um, in the Constitution. And the theory behind all that is that there is this provision in the Constitution that talks about, you know, commerce and how the, the general idea that there are certain things that affect uh, the entire country, and therefore, if it's something of national importance and something where the Supreme Court should have the ability to analyze laws and determine if they are in conformity with the rest of the Constitution. You know, some call it a power grab. Others have described it as a way to establish that the judicial branch of government has equal footing with uh, the executive and legislative branches. Kind of makes sense because without that, you know, assertion of that expanded power, um, the judicial branch, the Supreme Court in particular, would have very limited function, very limited power, very, you know, it would go back to what we always hear in those Senate confirmation hearings whenever there is a Supreme Court justice that's been nominated, that the role of the court is to call balls and strikes. You know, you've heard that many times. And if that were true, if it's simply to say, hey, it's in the Constitution or it isn't, well, we really wouldn't need the court at all, right? You could just, every opinion would just say, read the Constitution. If it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. 
But of course, you know, we're still dealing with, as we have been for the history of this country, a, a document that is supposed to be a a living set of guidelines. And I say living in the sense that uh, we can't figure that the 1780s is the standard by which uh, all aspects of modern life are governed, and it was never intended to be that way. It's not a rule book for how to live your life as an American citizen, but rather some guiding principles. And this is where um, Roe v. Wade, when, when it came out, um, and, and it was certainly a controversial decision, not for the reasons most people think, but because of the fact that it was um, an example of, uh, and probably at the pinnacle of an era when the court was finding content in the Constitution by reasoning and logic rather than reading the exact words. And, of course, this is something that the court has done for well over a hundred years. Uh, and, and I say that simply because in the early days of the Supreme Court, it, it really was kind of a balls and strikes type court. Like, you know, petitioner comes before this court, says this, and the opponent says that, and, well, you know, according to the Constitution, this person's right. And it wasn't until that expansion of authority by means of the Commerce Clause that the court started um, issuing opinions that had much broader implication for citizens throughout the country. So, and I say it was kind of the pinnacle of uh, when the court was willing to engage in uh, a much deeper analysis. I mean, after all, significant Supreme Court decisions starting in the oh heck, you know, 1950s and going forward, you know, started becoming very lengthy, very long analyses of not only the history of the court and the Constitution and so forth, but an amalgamation of principled thought, uh, which many believe is a good thing. Um, so again, if you, if you believe that the judicial branch... If you ascribe to the view that it should be equal, you know, uh, in terms of that checks and balances idea so that no one branch of the government has greater authority over any other in order to keep an equilibrium in our governmental uh, functions, then, of course, you have to believe that the court has a, a significant role in determining things. But here's where the tension has always been. And in fact, it's something that led to the Civil War. And that is whether you take the view that we are one nation under God, which, by the way, under God wasn't inserted <laughs> in that uh, phrase until much later. But if you do believe that we are one nation under God, we are all Americans, we are all the United States, and that there is a reason to have a federal government, then what sort of subject matters and what areas of law are significant enough where they affect each and every American in such a way that we remain a union. Does the federal government have the authority in certain areas of law to establish nationwide policy? Or is it, as many have argued, that this is really, yes, one country, but also sort of an assemblage of 
of many countries, um, each of which has its own uh, autonomy, so to speak. Now, of course, we don't have separate countries with their own borders that you know exclude Americans from going from one state to the other. We don't have um, the ability for many kingdoms to uh, establish their own um, singular, uh, you know, uh, sovereignty. But we do recognize the right for states to make decisions that affect um, the citizens of those states in uh, local ways. But here's where it gets really confusing, because over the years, and of course beginning with that whole Commerce Clause argument, but going into federal laws that have been created on the basis that it covers an issue of nationwide significance, nationwide importance, that equally affects Americans all over the country. And usually that has to do with either civil rights, as recognized specifically in federal laws, or um, the, the right of um, the federal government to establish subject matter jurisdiction over something that Congress uh, deems it to be of significant enough national importance that it requires a federal law to that effect. The, the number one example, I think, is uh, all of the federal laws that we have that affect uh, drugs, controlled substances. And we have federal laws that federally criminalize activities relating to controlled substances. And it's often been questioned, you know, why is that something that the federal government felt um, either the need or the authority to establish nationwide standards, nationwide law enforcement standards um, for something that is really something that traditionally would have been left up to the states. So you kind of see where I'm going with this, but uh, we do have to take a break. We'll be right back. So before the break, I was talking about the um, expansion of federal authority over certain subject matters that had traditionally been left up to the states. And a, a big a rather big sea change um, outside the realm of civil rights, because of course that was something that was uh, applied on a nationwide standard in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But uh, a big thing that happened, at least legislatively, that set the precedent for all kinds of other federal legislation was the war on drugs. And really, you remember that term came into being. Um, from Richard Milhouse Nixon, uh, you know, the leader of the silent majority. And the idea behind it was it's a national emergency. It's something that affects uh, the lives of everyone throughout the entire country. The federal government saw a need, or at least at the president's behest, saw a need to greatly expand uh, federal standards of enforcement and federal actual prosecution of things that, uh, again, were usually states' issues. So look at it this way. Um, it's been, through complicated analyses, uh, determined that certain areas of governing people's lives, especially as it relates to things such as criminal laws, 
the um, regulation of conduct, um, what people can or can't do, has been um, traditionally been something that um, the states are allowed to consider on an individual basis. I mean, we see living proof of this concept by virtue of the fact that the you know many states throughout our country have legalized cannabis um, in various forms, either medical marijuana, recreational marijuana. We have industrial hemp to generate CBD products here in Wisconsin, but um, you know that it's a good example of how that tension exists because it still is on the books that um, it you know tetrahydrocannabinols, marijuana in and of itself is 100% flat out illegal on a federal level. And it's a law that applies in every single place in our United States. It's li it's illegal under federal law. Yet, um, of course, that's <laughs> it's, it's a problem that Congress has yet to fix because we still want states to determine on their own, and they have been, uh, whether or not this is something that should be locally determined. And it's interesting because those that say uh, that marijuana in and of itself, you know, is a gateway drug, it shouldn't be legalized, it's not worth, you know, all the economic benefits and all the arguments about how it's a waste of law enforcement resources. Well, yeah, I mean, you can believe whatever you want about that. But the point is that we in Wisconsin who... Um, our legislature has remained steadfast that marijuana is a dangerous enough substance that it should not be legalized. I know that we're kind of an outlier here in the Midwest, but the point is that's, you see, that's a state's rights issue, right? Because Wisconsin is maintaining that it shouldn't be subject to some broader federal standard. And by the way, the broader federal standard is that it is flat out illegal for, for, <laughs> Really weird reasons because of the scheduling of the substance. And that's why we've talked about it many times in the show before, a rescheduling of the substance. Or for that matter, if um, the, that law were simply withdrawn uh, on a federal level, you know, it'd still be allowed on an individual state basis. But you know, it's kind of interesting that on the one hand, people that tout the fact that the federal government has laws in effect that represent a policy for the entire nation that, are, that is on the books, has not been reversed, is something that the states are still able to make laws that are contrary to it. And then they go basically unenforced in those states because of the respect for local state governments to make those determinations, okay? So uh, on the one hand, the, there's this concept that the federal government would have the ability to assert itself over something that um, perhaps the states should be determining on an individual basis. But there's that tension between that concept and if it's something that affects, you know, not only interstate commerce, but, you know, the fabric of our country on a whole. And the original assertion behind uh regulating controlled substances was on a federal level is that it was an emergency, a nationwide emergency, a war on drugs. And that justified that type of action, you see. 
So getting back to this Dobbs decision, really, the, if you boil it down to, I mean, it's hundreds of pages long, right? But if you boil it down to what it actually says, and yes, it is a quote-unquote reversal of the whole part of the holding of Roe versus Wade, it does not, and you, you have to know what you're talking about if you're going to talk about this decision, but it does not say that abortion is now illegal throughout our country. That's not what it says at all. It simply says that the rationale by which Roe v. Wade, um, the rationale upon which Roe v. Wade relied upon was that it is something where there is has to be recognized within the body of the Constitution and the logical consequences in order to give meaning and effect to the various provisions that, that form the overall concept of what our freedoms entail. Is that something that includes this general concept that we call the right to privacy? And that's found in a, in a number of different provisions. Not because it says there is a right to privacy anywhere in the Constitution. It doesn't. But, you know, just for example, the the no quarter provision uh, you, is unconstitutional for the government to require citizens to quarter troops. Um, you know, that's in there. <laughs> um and part of that is, you know, why uh, this respect for the integrity and individual decision making of citizens of this country, right? Um, we talk about it all the time uh, in various different ways. So, so what I mean by that is, what is it? What does it mean to be American? And what does it mean when we talk about our freedoms, the freedom of speech? the freedom of religion, the freedom to be basically left alone and not interfered with when it comes to individual decisions that affect uh, one's life and how it affects the overall concept of freedoms in our society. So you see, that's why Roe v. Wade was significant and at the time controversial because, again, those that believe that uh, the role of the court is to simply read the Constitution well, if that was it, then Roe v. Wade would have never happened, right? Because <laughs> as Justice Alito pointed out in the Dobbs decision, he looked and it doesn't say anything about abortion in the Constitution, shockingly. Um, of course it doesn't, because it, it was the Constitution was never intended to be so specific that it would be uh, a an exclusive, uh, you know, listing of how... The rules of the country should work. It's meant to be much broader than that. And we all know that. I mean, it's repeatedly something that comes up in constitutional scholarship, that in order to give meaning to other provisions in the Constitution, in order for them to make any sense, in order for us to say, yes, uh, this, any given principle that we're talking about here has to have meaning, then we have to take that step further and say, how does that effectively become that? Let's talk about Gideon versus Wainwright as a good example. You know, Mr. Gideon um, was a an indigent fellow that was um, incarcerated and didn't have sufficient funds to get himself a lawyer. 
He read the Constitution enough to realize that the Sixth Amendment guarantees the right to counsel. And the Fifth Amendment guarantees the right to due process as well as the Sixth Amendment. Sixth Amendment applies to criminal proceedings, of course. And, you know, on a piece of paper with a pencil, uh, Mr. Gideon um, went through the process of petitioning the court and ended up all the way in the Supreme Court arguing that because the Constitution says he has a right to counsel, that somebody other than him has to pay for it, which was a preposterous notion at the time. And people literally laughed when they thought, how can you derive that? It doesn't say anything about who pays for it. It just says you have a right to it. we got to take a break. We'll come right back. So going back to our discussion about fundamental rights and... Um, before the break, we were talking about Gideon versus Wainwright and this notion that in order for the right to counsel in the Bill of Rights to, to make any sense, Mr. Gideon argued all the way up to the Supreme Court that that would require that someone who is indigent and has no ability to actually pay for a lawyer, given the fact that we have always had a system of private attorneys, I am one, of course, uh, that provide services to the public as barristers um, are a you know private business that one would have to engage by paying for. That's just been the way it, it has been up until Gideon versus Wainwright came out. But again, Mr. Gideon is saying, look, if <laughs> you know, again with a piece on a piece of paper with pencil, that's how it went up to the Supreme Court. <laughs> He said, uh, how can I have the right to counsel and I can't afford one? So in order to get, have that guaranteed right given to me, somebody else is going to have to pay for it. I think the state should have to pay for it. And the notion, as I said before, was simply preposterous. And nobody imagined that the Supreme Court would end up agreeing with them, but they did. And, you know, a lot of the legal scholarship surrounding this um, was very concerned because if that's something that the court can read into that constitutional provision, could it also be argued that, hey, the Second Amendment guarantees my right to bear arms, but, but I don't have a gun because I can't afford one, so the government needs to buy me a gun. Or, <laughs> as you can see, all the permutations there. Like, okay, how can I... I can't afford to exercise this right, so I want the government to pay for whatever is required in order for that right to, to be fully exercised. Of course, we've never gone that route as on a Second Amendment analysis. And, and I'm being a little bit facetious because it simply says the right to bear arms, not the right to have arms. Like, you can't say, I have a right to have a weapon in my home that the government has to pay for. No, I mean, it doesn't say that. But then again, the right to counsel doesn't say, you know, the government has to pay for it. But again, this is a very significant decision because it was a step in the direction of the court uh, taking issue with rights that are somehow, if we acknowledge them, are, are hollow if they don't apply in a way where they have the effect they were intended to have. But even in that context, think about it. You know, as we often say, the Constitution was written by 
white land-owning men. And it's envisioned that, yes, although these laws would apply to all citizens, really, we're talking about how the, the white men that ruled the country in that aspect, you know, how would it affect their individual lives? Um, and of course, the world and society in our country, thankfully, has evolved beyond that so that we don't just hold to those standards. And by the way, you know, I want to point something else out that's very important here. Um, you know, the, the form of government that we have, when we go back to our founding documents, there are very few examples throughout the rest of the world that has uh, a currently existing form of government that is older than our existing form of government. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the many world wars that have happened, well, the two of them anyway, as, along with all the other um, political shifts and changes that have occurred. I mean, obviously the Soviet Union was uh, an experiment that ultimately failed, but you know, throughout the world, there have been um, complete reinventions of different forms of government in different countries. And by and large, that, that's how it's happened over, you know, whether it's happened in the past 50 years, 100 years, or whatever. The United States is, is one of the oldest countries that has a, has a track record of, you know, a more or less uninterrupted form of government, which is kind of shocking when you think about it, because yes, all of Europe existed much longer um, in their forms of government in, in before the new world was discovered, of course, you know, but as far as their current existing forms of government and the functions and how they all inter interrelate and, you know, their constitutional principles, whether it's a monarchy, whether it has a parliament, whether it's a representative democracy or whatever, we are one of the oldest in the world. And we want it to be that way because those of us that do um, respect and want this experiment in democracy to continue don't want an upheaval of our way of life. I mean, it, that would be terrible right i mean we'd have to it, we're talking we're talking about a coup or something that would have to happen and um changing everything that we know and hold dear uh as part of our american fabric of life so i point that out simply because a lot of the gymnastics that occur in the supreme court are part of an effort to make sure that we remain intact as a country and that the guiding principles which um, affect the daily life of all of us need to be administered in such a way so that people continue to have faith in the government. You can't have um, an existing form of government if people ultimately lose faith in its um, efficacy, in its uh, ability to govern. And one might say that there's a lot of people currently in our society that have no faith in that ability. Um, and you might be right. But getting back to what this Dobbs decision really is all about. Okay. Um, again, it's not saying abortion is legal now. It was illegal before, now it's legal. It, that's not the point. The point is that it's something that should have been left up to the states. 
um, on a state by state basis. Which again, the surprising thing about that is that the, the federal government, including the courts, have felt it okay to make rulings that that um, because of the national impact, the only way to effectively preserve that right when when and where you find it is by having a national policy that governs from a legal perspective. And that was the idea behind Roe to begin with, is that if we can find through this combination of circumstances, combination of principles, and say we can identify that there is in fact this quote-unquote right to privacy, which by the way, um, Dobbs doesn't address that but you'll note if you read um the concurring opinion of clarence thomas the suggestion is that this decision should go much further and um all of the things that the supreme court has done to protect the integrity of one's individual decision about how one leads his or her life should not vary from state to state i mean for example, gay marriage. I mean, we have a Supreme Court decision that is precedent that says states, individual states, can't ban gay marriage anywhere. And, you know, it's fairly recent history that that became the law of the land by virtue of a Supreme Court decision. Um, and Thomas kind of points out that we're really kind of talking about the same thing uh, in the sense that is this something that um, individual states, by virtue of the variation or differences in what might exist from one state to another? And this was a big part of why the whole gay marriage controversy ended up with a decision that um, made it. So in order for that, that right to privacy, that right to self-determination, if you want to call it that, has any meaning... You can't have the system where getting married to somebody in one state is legal, but it's illegal in the adjoining state or for that, you know, because then we'll have, which as we used to have, certain states allowing it and other states not. And people would have to travel to go to other places, sometimes, you know, creating all kinds of impediments that shouldn't be there for someone to make that very personal decision about his or her own life. Um, that's kind of what Thomas is talking about is that, you know, yeah, Roe v. Wade was incorrectly decided, but so were all these other things. And, you know, we should really be taking a look at whether or not the Supreme Court should be telling states what they can or can't do when it comes to something that isn't in the Constitution. Guess what? Gay marriage isn't in the Constitution. It's not in there. <laughs> so anyway, we'll be back right after these messages. So the Dobbs decision comes down to hey, guess what? There's, um, there is no federal right to an abortion. So the states have to figure it out on their own. And those states that want to make it illegal, go ahead. Those states that want to make it legal, go ahead. Not the Supreme Court's problem. And interestingly, um, that the, the reason why we don't have a federal law that protects privacy rights. And of course, now, after this decision, there's a lot of discussion about whether that's something that 
needs to happen or should have happened. It's kind of what Dobbs is saying is that, you know, if the, the will of the people were such that the representatives of um, our citizens believed that there should be a congressional action to establish a law that would have to be, of course, agreed to by the Senate and by the president, that there should be this federal law to protect this right, if it exists, um, the will of the people could very well have done that over the intervening years that Roe v. Wade has been Supreme Court law. But of course, if that was the law of the land, no one would have seen a need to do that. And here's the other problem that I don't think is fully fleshed out enough. I mean, I know this is not supposed to be a political issue, and it really isn't when it comes down to what this decision means. I mean, one might say, and they'd probably be right, that there's a political backdrop, right? So is it true that by having a um, conservative view of things, one might be inclined to view things a certain way versus one that might have a liberal view of things generally? They might be uh, subjectively viewing the same issue a different way. Sure, I mean, that's just human nature, isn't it? But when it comes down to the political backdrop here, one thing that I think isn't really fleshed out in this opinion is the fact that, and I'm not talking about modern politics, I'm talking about politics forever in general, the, the overall concept. Um, there are issues that politicians um, will waffle on, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And this is one of them, okay? How people feel about abortion is a very individual, sometimes based on one's religion, based on morality, based on one's view of whether it is um, sinful or not, or whether it's something that, the, that is, you know, does, does the life of an unborn child need to be protected by the government the same way that the life of a living mother who has, um, for whatever reason, her own sense of self-determination also protected by the government. How do we sort all that out? But to say that this is devoid of um, political problems is to ignore the fact that in order to have <laughs> think about it. If Roe v. Wade had been the law of the land, which it has been, it, you know, it's been precedent since it was decided in the 70s, why would there be, and what politician would want to make that the centerpiece of their, you know, campaign platform? Hey, Roe v. Wade's already the law of the land, but I also want to have kind of like a suspenders and belt uh, thing here just to make sure in case the Supreme Court ever decides differently that we need this federal law that protects um, the overall right to privacy including the right to make a decision about a medical decision about having an abortion or not um, no one would have done that and it's kind of silly to say hey no one did it so too bad um, you know you, you don't create those controversies where they don't exist obviously so now of course you know the the gist of the decision is, hey, if the federal government and and the, the people, the people of this country want the right to an abortion to be protected federally 
go ahead and make a law. Not, not the Supreme Court's job to make law. Man, he's right about that. But the point is, what happened to this discussion about precedent that comes up every single time a Supreme Court justice nominee comes up before that Senate confirmation committee? It's asked every single time. You know, tell us about Roe v. Wade. Is it precedent or not? Tell us about your view of precedential holdings of the Supreme Court. Why do they ask those questions? Because most senators are interested in seeing what this person's view is relating to judicial activism. Um, another way of saying that is, do you view the law as simple or complicated? And if it's simple, and again, this are you going to do something to make it more complicated than it really is? But part of that is recognizing precedent. Now, of course, it's true that once a decision by the court is made, it can be reversed later, and it happens. It's very rare, but it's an acknowledgement that the, that the general rule of precedent needs to be overridden by some other consideration. So let's talk about the, the, the rule of precedent. What does that mean? It means that in order for the Supreme Court's rules, or for that matter, any um, appellate court's rulings to have authority where they need to be followed, we consider them precedential. In other words, something that can be cited as the law. And of course, this happens um, in where the boots meet the ground in court all the time when we're in court litigating something and say, Your Honor, this is uh, the holding of such and such decision. And what you're telling that judge is you have to respect this as precedent because somebody else has already said this is what the law is as it relates to this subject. And it's important that that be a rule that continues to be followed because without that, there'd be no point to any Supreme Court decision. So, you know, again, this it's a general idea in the law that when the Supreme Court comes out with an opinion and has a decision that it has to be followed in the future unless there's something tragically wrong with it. Um, by the way, the Dred Scott decision was never formally, you know, withdrawn or overturned. <laughs> but, you know, we all know that it was very, very wrong. Um, and, of course, the courts that went on to recognize the rights that they found Mr. Scott didn't have um, kind of didn't mention that. But getting back to this idea of precedent, it's important. And the reason why it's asked is because nobody wants, neither party involved in this process, no senator whose responsibility it is to ask these questions wants somebody to come in and say, yeah, I'm going to clean up shop on uh, all these decisions in the past that I don't like. I'm going to get rid of them. That's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to be like, hey, let's ignore all of our precedent. Because if that was something that was even possible, it would lead to utter chaos. And it's been recognized over a very long time in our country that the only way that any decision can have any meaningful effect is if this rule of precedent applies. Otherwise, we would our guiding standards would be changing all the time. And like, nah, that was that was that other justice. I'm I'm the new one in town, you know. So forget about it. Um, it doesn't work that way. It's not supposed to work that way. But 
you know, all of these justices said, yep, Roe v. Wade, that's uh, precedent. You can't disturb precedent. I have respect for precedent. It would take an extraordinary set of circumstances to overrule precedent, and it's usually based on um, something that has dramatically changed or an acknowledgement of something that was factually wrong with a previous decision. And there are examples of that that have happened where there was some scientific or um, other assumption that was built into a decision that turns out later through modern knowledge <laughs> we know not to be true, you know, um, scientifically speaking or otherwise. And there's been a couple of cases like that, like, well, back when that was decided, um, science had not evolved to the point where we understood A, B, and C. Now we do, so that's obviously why uh, there needs to be a new standard. And I won't get into it, but um, I can save that for another show. There's a couple of very good examples of how that's happened. But, but to go back and say, oh, you know, this group of justices that were on the Supreme Court back in the 70s, they just got it all wrong. And, you know, the reality is that it should never have been decided that way to begin with. And we're going to assert our authority as the court now to just kind of say, nope, never mind, and start from scratch. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We'll probably have to address this in another show. But there is also kind of this unspoken rule that's followed by appellate courts. And that is, there's this consideration, even if it's in the back of the minds of those that are making these decisions uh, in the form of the justices. What is the disruptive impact on society at large if they were to disturb precedent? And that is one of the reasons why it's a bit surprising that it went as far as it did and this decision came out the way it is but the story's not over and that's really what the decision's all about is okay now legislature figure out what you're going to do not up to the supreme court that's really the bottom line so uh have a happy independence day weekend tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 whbl this has been legal offense have a great weekend